at OTJR, uh, and also um, OCAF, who I know are co-hosting uh, today. Also exactly. very nice to see lots of familiar faces uh, in the audience. Um, yeah, let me start with, I think, just those two apologies. I mean, one that Holly uh, can't be here. We have the Home Office uh, to thank, unfortunately, for, for that. Um, and also, apologies, the book isn't actually physically here yet. Uh, CUP promised me that there would be copious boxes delivered. Um, there's still a chance those boxes may be here by four o'clock, uh, but, but let, let's wait and see whether uh, that's the case. Um, as Ivo said, uh, this book, Distant Justice, is based on about 11 years of fieldwork, so in some ways it's a real relief that the book is finally out. Uh, this is fieldwork that I've conducted uh, between 2006 and 2017, um, about 600 interviews with international, national and community level actors, especially in the two case studies that uh, this book focuses on, uh, the ICC's interventions in Uganda and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, but the book also looks at the ICC's work across Africa as a whole. Uh, so there's an attempt to look at some of the structural features and structural effects of the ICC that aren't just relegated to these particular uh, cases, but that are applicable right across uh, the African uh, continent. In a nutshell, the book argues that the ICC is in a lot of trouble. It's in trouble in the sense that, I think I argue in the book, it's failing on its own terms, in terms of its ability to conduct effective investigations and prosecutions. It's also, I argue, failing on the terms of conflict-affected communities in Uganda and the DRC, and I think right across Africa. These are often communities that had very high hopes for what the ICC could do in terms of addressing mass atrocity. I also argue in the book that the ICC is producing some substantial problems for the way that politics is practiced uh, in African states today. And I argue that the ICC is in fact making these states more conflictual and more repressive than they were before the ICC uh, intervened. And all of these problems, I argue, basically stem from uh, one key idea uh, and the application of this key idea, which is the title of the book, uh, Distant Justice. A whole set of problems associated with the idea that you can deliver uh, justice in very complex African conflict zones uh, from the relatively uh, comfortable corridors of, of the Hague. I also try to argue in the book that I think there is some scope for reform of the ICC. I, I think that there are some ways in which the court may be able to overcome some of these problems associated uh, with distance, but I, I'm relatively circumspect about uh, the court's openness to, to this kind of, of reform. So what I want to do in this presentation is really three things. Firstly, I need to uh, explain this concept of distant justice that the entire book revolves around. Secondly, I want to show what kind of practical and political problems are created on the ground, especially in Uganda and the DRC, because of the ICC's insistence on distant justice. And then thirdly, if I've left myself any time, Ivo, I, I want to try and suggest some pathways for reform. Uh, some things that I hope the ICC may be able to do to, to become a more effective international actor in the future. But before I do any of that, I, I want to begin with an anecdote um, that I think encapsulates some of the key themes that I want to explore uh, this afternoon. And it's an episode that relates to uh, uh, the Congolese warlord, uh, Bosco Entengunda. This is the story, in fact, that opens uh, the book. Uh, in fact, Intingunda's case before the ICC was recently depicted in the BBC series uh, Black Earth Rising. Now, some of you 
may have seen the series, uh, that this occurs about halfway through uh, the first episode. Although unusually for uh, television depictions of these kinds of events, the reality is in fact much more spectacular and much more surreal uh, than the series uh, indicates. The Intingunda story uh, revolves around uh, the morning of Monday, the 18th of March, 2013. Uh, a white taxi pulled up outside the US Embassy uh, in Kigali, the capital of Rwanda. Um, a very broad-shouldered man in a denim jacket and a black baseball cap went up to the security desk, uh, just to the left-hand side of the main gates to the embassy. He went up to uh, the receptionist and he said, uh, good morning, my name is Bosco Entengunda. Um, I'm here to speak to the US ambassador. To which the fairly flummoxed receptionist said, uh, excuse me, sir, do you have an appointment? Um, and I've interviewed the security personnel and a lot of the US embassy staff um, who kind of confirmed the, the, the following tale. Entengunda, sort of in reply, said basically, don't you know who I am? Um, he may have referred to the fact that in the international media, he's routinely referred to as, as the Terminator, this terrible sort of nickname. Um, and he tried to explain that he was here uh, at the US Embassy to hand himself over to the International Criminal Court. Many of you will be familiar with the Entengunda case. Uh, he'd fallen out with his rebel allies in Eastern Congo. He was very worried about falling into the hands of the Rwandan government, who also have a very complicated relationship with him. And he had decided that his safest route was in fact to hand himself over to international justice. He then was asked to sit in the security uh, uh, cabin for an hour. He was then let through the metal detectors into the courtyard between the security uh, desk and the main entrance to the embassy. He spent two hours pacing backwards and forwards in the forecourt until eventually someone from the US embassy came downstairs realising who he was and kind of whisked him very quickly uh, inside. So one of the world's most wanted fugitives had to wait three hours to actually get into uh, the embassy. Um, there's a certain perversity about that, but the story gets even more perverse um, because the big issue then for uh, the US government and also for Rwanda, two non-signatories to the ICC, was what the hell do we do with this guy? Um, it took them four days to interrogate him and decide what they were going to do. And eventually the two governments agreed that in fact they would send Ntengunda to the ICC. So under heavy security, he was then taken in a convoy of vehicles to uh, Kigali International Airport. Uh, he sat in the VIP lounge handcuffed uh, for a further four hours while six different diplomats from different uh, international embassies argued over whose responsibility it was to pay for the petrol to fuel the plane uh, to get this aircraft to the Netherlands so that Entengunda could be prosecuted. Uh, the Dutch government said, well, we've already paid for the fuel uh, for this plane to come from the Netherlands uh, to Kigali, so it's not our responsibility to pay for the return journey. Uh, the, the US and Rwandan uh, delegations made themselves extremely scarce because they said we can't be seen to be aiding and abetting the court in any shape or form. And so the remaining European ambassadors had to suddenly make frantic phone calls to their bosses uh, in their respective capitals. Credit cards were passed around and eventually the plane was refuelled and Entengunda went off uh, to The Hague. Um, and his trial is ongoing at the moment. So I begin with that story, not only because you know, the perversity kind of speaks for itself, um, but also because it encapsulates a couple of themes that I think are really important to understanding that the way that the ICC has operated in Africa uh, until now. Uh, it highlights how much of the ICC's work has been based on serendipity rather than strategy. Um, and even the ICC's latest suspect in custody 
uh, Alfred Yekatom, who was transferred from the Central African Republic on the weekend, kind of fits the same bill. Uh, he's kind of fallen into um, the, the ICC's hands rather than being someone that the ICC had been systematically pursuing uh, for, for a very long time. But also it shows just how reliant the ICC is on the cooperation of states, uh, including states that are not signatories to the court, uh, as we saw with uh, the US and Rwanda. And so these are a couple of themes that I want to pick up in a, in a bit more detail uh, in just a moment. Let me say something about this idea of distant justice, which frames the analysis in the book as a whole. The book is basically structured around the ICC's five major relationships with domestic actors in Uganda, the DRC and Africa as a whole. So the book looks at the ICC's relationships with domestic governments, with local populations, with national judiciaries, uh, with processes on the ground that are based around amnesties, uh, including truth commissions and peace negotiations. And finally, there's a chapter looking at how the ICC intersects with community-based approaches to transitional justice, how it deals with local courts, how it deals with uh, grassroots uh, responses to violence. And in looking at these intersections, at looking at these five major relationships that the ICC has uh, on the ground, the book argues that the court is fundamentally driven by this core principle of distance. This idea of distance has various components to it. The most obvious one is physical distance. The ICC being located in The Hague, but conducting investigations and prosecutions that relate to a very far-flung conflict. But distance also represents the ICC's dominance by non-African and technical legal expertise. So a lot of my interviews inside the court, in chambers, in, in the prosecution, the defence, the registry, uh, have shown just uh, how dominant the institution as a whole is, uh, particularly by Northern Hemisphere uh, specialists who have often a very particular technical and, and legal expertise. A kind of a generalist rather than country specific or regional specific expertise. And that includes uh, the fact that there is not a single ICC investigator, either for the defence or the prosecution, who comes from any of the African states where the court is investigating at the moment. So this, I think, is also a key aspect of, of distance. The, the parachuting in of investigators, often from uh, North America, from Western Europe, from Australia, uh, who don't have any previous uh, expertise or, or, or even any personal experience in uh, these particular African states, and yet they are expected to conduct these very complicated investigations in, in these conflict zones. Distance is also manifest in the fact that the investigators in particular have very limited field time. So in the case of the Office of the Prosecutor, the protocol is that those investigators should never spend more than 10 days at a time in, in any investigative trip. Uh, this is mainly for security reasons, but again, you get an immediate sense of the challenges that flow from uh, people who don't necessarily have a huge amount of experience in these co complex environments, only spending 10 days at a time to find witnesses, to find evidence, and to try to build effective cases. And behind all of this, I think there is a particular philosophy of distance that doesn't just motivate the ICC, but motivates all international criminal legal institutions. It's a philosophy fundamentally of needing to be separate from uh, the messiness and the manipulation of the domestic, uh, political and, and social uh, terrain. 
The philosophy is one of justice needing to be neutral, uh, to be impartial, to be fundamentally separate from the domestic space. And even beyond that, I think there is an idea that in doing so, the ICC is inherently technically more superior. Um, it is superior to uh, the, the, these domestic processes. And there is an attempt to deliver a, a universal as opposed to a particularist uh, form of, of justice, because, of course, this is a permanent uh, global court. So you get a sense that distance uh, represents various things. There are ideas and there's a philosophy that underpins it. There is a way that personnel are selected and the type of expertise that the court is predicated on. Uh, and then there is a distancing component to the practicalities of how investigations are carried out on the ground. What I argue in the book is that this idea and this practice of distant justice clashes fundamentally with another key principle that the ICC prefers to talk about when it tries to justify itself. And that is the principle of complementarity. This is a word that crops up consistently in the Rome Statute of the ICC itself, and that is uh, a key issue in uh, many principal actors in, in the court um, when they justify and when they talk about what the ICC does. This idea of complementarity, in fact, uh, expresses a completely different set of ideas to the idea of, of distance. It frames the court as a backstop institution that only intervenes in domestic spaces in absolutely exceptional circumstances. And the first ICC prosecutor, Luis Marino Acampo, of course, famously said that on the basis of complementarity, the success of the ICC would be seen in a complete absence of cases because domestic institutions would be doing the tough job of investigating and prosecuting these cases. It would, in essence, uh, make the ICC completely redundant. Complementarity also expresses a discourse of, of deference to national institutions and respect for national sovereignty. So in that sense, complementarity shares a lot of uh, features with the responsibility to protect principle uh, in uh, international relations and increasingly in international law. This idea that it's state's fundamental responsibility to uh, investigate and prosecute cases, they get the first bite at the cherry. And it's only if states fail to do so uh, that there is a role for uh, the ICC. Similarly with R2P, it's states that are fundamentally expected to uh, protect their citizens, but if they don't, there is then potentially a justification for international intervention. And also within complementarity, there's this idea that the ICC should be a partner to international actors and international institutions. And some branches of the ICC emphasise this idea of complementarity more than others. But I guess the key idea uh, in the book, in, in sort of theoretical terms, is that while the court talks a good game about complementarity and this notion of deference and partnership, it practices distance, uh, which carries with it a completely different set of assumptions, preoccupations and, and biases. Not least an idea of the ICC's inherent uh, superiority to the, the, the uh, domestic terrain. So whereas complementarity talks about the court being a subsidiary actor to the domestic uh, terrain, distance, I think, highlights that, in fact, the ICC doesn't like the national space very much. And it's, in fact, a scepticism about local actors, local politics, local institutions that necessitates the ICC in the first place. It's because of a perceived set of weaknesses and political manipulations, especially of uh, domestic courts, that there was even momentum to build a global permanent court uh, in the first place. And so I think it's that sort of core set of ideas that ultimately are, are much stronger than the insistence on, on complementarity.
So with these ideas of distance and complementarity in mind, let, let me turn now to uh, the empirical analysis uh, in the book. Um, and for the sake of brevity um, and your patience on a Monday afternoon, I just want to sketch some of the key themes in, in two out of the five empirical chapters in the book. And I want to look at two of the ICC's most important relationships on the ground, especially in Uganda and Congo. I want to say something about the court's relationship with African states, and I want to say something about the ICC's relations uh, with local populations. So in terms of how the court relates to domestic governments, there is a key finding in this book that I think has some key repercussions for everything else that I argue. And that is that because of the ICC's insistence on distant justice, it is structurally incapable of prosecuting sitting government members. And this is a major climb down for the court because one of the key things that was said about the institution when it was set up was that it would be able to go after senior political figures, high-ranking political and military actors, who it was assumed domestic institutions wouldn't be able to touch. And so this was one of the key justifications for establishing the ICC uh, in the first place. But as we've seen in the last 16 years of the ICC's operations, the court also can't deal with this category of actors. And I think a lot of the reasons for that uh, have to do with this idea of, of distant justice. As the book shows, in terms of relating to national governments, the ICC has basically developed two types of relationships with African states. On the one hand, we've seen a highly antagonistic relationship between the ICC and particularly the government of Sudan because of the attempt to prosecute uh, President Bashir, uh, and also with the government of Kenya uh, because of the pursuit of uh, President Kenyatta and Deputy President uh, Ruto. Because in these kinds of situations, when the court has tried to go after senior uh, political actors, those governments have simply shut the court down. They've interfered with cases, they've killed witnesses, they've destroyed evidence, they've often blocked investigators even entering the country or at least uh, entering particular crime sites. And the Kenyan government in particular has now written the playbook for any state in the future that feels that it is threatened by the ICC in terms of how systematic and comprehensive the Kenyan government's uh, interference with the ICC's work uh, has been. And of course, that has been noted by governments uh, right around the world and, and far uh, beyond Africa. Or on the other hand, we've seen the ICC develop very cosy relationships with African states. And in particular, I think Uganda and the DRC bear this out. What we've seen in these two countries, firstly, is that the ICC actively chased cases in these two countries. So contrary to the complementarity idea that the court is supposed to be a backstop, it's supposed to be, if anything, a reluctant intervener in African domains, what we saw the court do in Uganda and Congo was make the first move and go to uh, the two respective governments in, a, in, a, in effect to lobby for ICC intervention. And, I've done a huge amount of interviews, especially with the background players uh, in Kampala and in Kinshasa, who, who all tell a very similar story, about the fact that there were detailed negotiations between the prosecutor's office in particular in The Hague and these African states about what a uh, domestic, uh, oh, sorry, what, what an ICC intervention would look like and how ultimately this could be in the interest of, of these African states. Uh, 
It's unclear to me, but I think there is a, a very strong suggestion that in those negotiations, the ICC was able to say to those states, don't worry, we're not going after your people. Um, this will ultimately be a set of investigations about your, your political uh, enemies. So this, this, I think, is very important because the court has always preferred to say that we only got involved in Africa because we were invited in by these states. Especially when the ICC is accused of being a neo-colonial actor, it prefers to frame itself as a very reluctant uh, interventionist um, into African affairs. In fact, what we saw in Uganda and Congo was a court that was on the front foot, that needed cases in the early days of the institution, and in the process had to build these extremely close relationships with, with the governments uh, concerned. The court, of course, has always denied that this was the case until very recently, even some ICC actors are very reluctantly saying, at least in the Ugandan case, this is what we did. We did chase those cases. Um, they're a bit more reluctant to say the same in, in the case of Congo. What we then saw was the ICC work in lockstep with these two governments at every single stage of their investigations, including travelling with uh, the national armies of both states to atrocity sites, sometimes even conducting investigations side by side with the security services of Uganda and the Democratic uh, Republic. And the outcome of all of this, I argue in the book, is that the ICC has been willfully used by the Ugandan and the Congolese states. That it has been used by the executives of these two states uh, to protect themselves from prosecution at a time when both the Ugandan and the Congolese government, whether it's government officials or whether it's senior military actors are accused of serious atrocities against their civilian populations. And the ICC has been willfully used as a way to target the political and the military opponents of, of, of these uh, government actors. The most egregious example of this, I argue, in the book uh, relates to uh, the cases of uh, the Ituri warlords uh, in northeastern Congo. So these are four individuals, uh, Labunga, Katanga, Engujolo, and now Ntengunda. Uh, who were already being investigated by the domestic Congolese courts at the time that the ICC intervened. Now, what's important about the Aturi case is that it was the Congolese executive, President Kabila and his coterie, who said to the ICC, we can't deal with these cases ourselves. We're ill-equipped, our judiciary is completely defunct, we don't have the means to be able to investigate these individuals, so there should be no legal impediment to them going to the Hague. But in fact, the judiciary in Ituri is the best developed uh, in all of the DRC. It's gone through a massive reform process backed by various European donors in the last 15, 16 years. The Ituri judiciary already by that stage had a track record of dealing with middle ranking and high ranking members of the Congolese military. And specifically at the time of the ICC intervention had active dossiers open uh, against the four rebel leaders uh, in question. So the frustration of judicial actors in Ituri is that because the executive already had this separate relationship with The Hague, uh, they were being denied the opportunity to deal with these very high-ranking uh, suspects in their own courts, uh, and which would have provided an enormous opportunity for the local population to see uh, justice uh, being done. The calculation by Kabila and his government seems to be that it would rather see many of these cases go off to The Hague to be prosecuted by an ICC that they felt was already under the thumb, rather than taking the risk of these cases uh, being dealt with by a domestic judiciary that was showing itself to be highly active. And within that, they were worried that 
Uh, these cases could also highlight uh, the role of the Congolese government at certain times in backing uh, some of these, these rebel leaders uh, themselves. So there's something paradoxical that's come out of this. It shows that in certain African settings, some executives are deciding that it's a better deal uh, to see your, uh, your suspects from your soil being prosecuted in The Hague because you think that the power dynamics with the ICC are in your favour rather than seeing these uh, individuals prosecuted uh, in your own uh, judiciaries, in your own uh, court systems. And then to rub salt in the wound, to put it kind of bluntly, um, and I think as an Aussie I'm allowed to kind of say these kinds of things, the court has made a complete hash of those Ituri cases. So if you look at the way that the Lubanga, the Katanga and the Ingljolo cases in particular have played out, the ICC's evidence has been extremely flimsy. The Lubanga case was paused on three occasions because the judges were so frustrated with the quality of the evidence, um, and the other two cases uh, showed some serious weaknesses as well. Something that has not uh, been missed by Congolese judicial actors, who say not only have we seen these cases stolen from underneath our noses, it looks like the ICC is doing a worse job than we would have had we had the opportunity to prosecute these cases um, at home. And so what I argue in the book is that I think distance explains a huge amount of what has gone on in a case like that uh, in Ituri. What we're seeing is not a court that is hovering above the political fray um, uh, in the way that th th this kind of idea of neutrality may have assumed. In fact, we're seeing a court that is fundamentally dependent on uh, state actors for every step of, uh, of their work. We're seeing a court that lacks on-the-ground enforcement. It needs the security and the evidence provided by states. Um, and all of this is being exacerbated by some other features that relate to distance. It's exacerbated by the ICC's fundamental lack of political expertise in terms of how to navigate the political machinations of the likes of Kabila uh, and, uh, and Museveni. It's exacerbated by the lack of field time that ICC personnel are spending. And possibly, too, I think a certain complacency about how easy Africa was going to be for the court. And this was something that came up in my interviews in The Hague very strongly. An idea that, especially in, in terms of the office of the prosecutor, we could waltz into Africa, the evidence was sort of ready uh, to, to be captured, the international community would be behind us if we went after uh, the likes of the Aturi warlords. This would be quick, it would be easy, we're going to get the kind of results uh, that we need. And so what has gone along, I think, with this idea of distance and the idea of the ICC being superior to the domestic terrain uh, is a high degree of political naivete, which has led to the ICC uh, being used. And one of the outcomes of all of that now is that I think we have to understand the ICC as only a court for non-state actors. This is a court that is unable structurally and philosophically to get around the power and the kind of wiliness of, of, of domestic states. Even the case of Al Alfred Yakatom on the weekend, who of course had been a militia leader in Central African Republic, uh, then had been elected as a member of parliament, he was only sent to The Hague when he lost his position as an MP, when he became available. Um, he made the fundamental mistake of shooting off, uh, firing his rifle um, in the car uh, parliament um, about three weeks ago, he was arrested, he'd obviously fallen out with other powerful actors in the car government, um, and that is when we then saw him sent to The Hague. So the lesson there is don't fire your rifle in Parliament, don't lose power. Do, as long as you are inside the government and you maintain uh, the reins, especially of the executive, you can protect yourself uh, from the ICC. The minute you are deposed, 
then you risk uh, investigation and, and prosecution. So the lesson I think that is being learned, not just by African states, but by states around the world, is cling to power. As long as you cling to power, you, you face no significant threat uh, from uh, the, the ICC. So some big problems, especially in terms of the ICC's relations with uh, domestic states. Let me also say something about the ICC's relationships uh, with local actors, especially with local communities in Uganda and Congo that are directly affected uh, by mass conflict. So about 500 out of the 650 interviews that underpin this book uh, were conducted at the local level uh, in northern Uganda, in eastern DRC, on, on about 20 different uh, field trips. One thing I have to say about these interviews is that they throw up extremely heterogeneous material. So one of the things that I try to capture in the book is that there is no consistent, homogeneous, northern Ugandan view of the ICC. There is no eastern Congolese consistent, homogeneous view of, of the court. There's a huge amount of disagreement and diversity in this kind of, in this category of, of the analysis. But nevertheless, there are some recurring themes that come out of these interviews. So I, I want to sort of very briefly sketch some of these, these <clears throat> consistent issues. Consistently, and I would say increasingly over the lifespan of this project, local communities in northern Uganda and eastern Congo have started to express a fundamental distrust of the ICC, a real questioning of the court's legitimacy, and importantly for the court itself, therefore a huge reluctance to cooperate with the court. And this is one of the things that ICC investigators also talk about, especially in Congo and Uganda, is how increasingly difficult it has become for them to do their work on the ground. Because the more that local actors engage with the court, the more sceptical they become and the more reluctant they become to cooperate uh, with the ICC. And there are several reasons for this loss of legitimacy. The most important one is something I've already referred to, which is the ICC's fundamental lack of investigations into government crimes. This is a recurring issue in these two countries. For a reason that I had to probe a little bit more to try to understand, because you're often talking about local communities in places like Acholi, Lango and Teso in northern Uganda, or Ituri and north and south Kivu in eastern Congo, that of course have experienced massive conflict and, 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 and violence committed by state, but also non-state actors. And in fact, these are sometimes communities that have suffered more at the hands of, of rebel groups than they have at the hands of, of their own governments, although their own governments are also responsible for major atrocities. But something important came out of a lot of these interviews, once I kind of pushed this a bit further, which was that there's something very particular for local actors about government crimes, about crimes that are committed by your own state. So the kind of thing that was routinely said by my respondents was, well, you expect the rebels to commit violence here. You know, you expect the LRA in Uganda or the UPC, or the FDLR in Congo, to rape, pillage, murder, etc. But we expect our state uh, to protect us, to provide for us. So there's a notion here of the social contract being fundamentally damaged by state crimes. And so what is being expressed here, I think, is that there is something especially grave about state crimes. And that word grave or gravity really matters for the court because in the Rome Statute that is one of the key criteria according to which the ICC itself is supposed to decide which conflict situations and which suspects it focuses on. 
So in systematically ignoring state complicity in atrocities, not only is that producing massive problems in terms of legitimacy on the ground, it's also in many respects violating some key practices or some key principles of the Rome Statute itself. So there's something very particularly damaging about the ICC not dealing uh, with government cases. On top of that, what local communities in northern Uganda and eastern Congo also observe consistently is this lockstep cooperation uh, between uh, the, the court and state actors. So, for example, I remember an interview that I did uh, in Bologna, which is one of the key massacre sites um, in northern Uganda, heading up towards the, uh, the South Sudan border about three years ago. Um, and a lady in her 60s, uh, she, she was talking about various waves of LRA killings that her community had suffered. But, but she said, look, you know, we were, in fact, very pleased when the ICC came here. You know, finally, someone was paying attention to us. Finally, someone had come to gather evidence about the things that we'd lived through. But whenever ICC investigators came, she said, she said both defence and prosecution did this, they would always arrive with the UPDF. They would always arrive with uh, the Ugandan army. And she said, look, you know, they would, they would try to hide this fact. So the UPDF would sort of park their, their armoured vehicles, you know, sort of 100 or 200 metres away. But everybody could see that. And these are communities that have suffered major crimes at the hands of the Ugandan army, but also that tend to have a kind of fundamental political distrust in the Ugandan state because of decades of neglect and marginalisation. So, that, you know, they're no friend of the Ugandan army. And so there was a real sense of surprise amongst many respondents in a place like Bologna that the ICC had kind of turned up with an actor who was one of the key players in the conflict uh, itself. Uh, so this kind of thing is, is getting noticed um, in northern Uganda and eastern Congo in extremely damaging ways. There's also a sense, very consistently through my interviews, that many ICC investigators in particular are seen as fundamentally unaccountable. You turn up, you ask us difficult questions about sensitive and traumatic experiences that we've had, and then you disappear. And we have no idea what happens to any of this evidence. We don't even know if we get... Uh, considered official victims of these crimes in a legal sense, despite the fact that we've given you an enormous amount uh, of evidence. And this sentiment was especially acute in northern Uganda between 2012 and 2015, this three-year period, when the ICC hibernated the Ugandan investigations. The ICC basically admitted to something that, to be honest, was pretty clear from the outset of the ICC's work in northern Uganda, which was it would never be able to capture the LRA commanders to actually get them in the dock. Because of that fact, when Fatu Ben Suda became prosecutor, she said, we are going to divert all of our resources away from northern Uganda to several other African situations. And so the reaction in northern Uganda was, where are you? We've put ourselves as witnesses on the line for this court over the last six, seven, eight years. And also, this was an ICC that was seen as extremely uh, interfering in a very delicate northern Ugandan peace process between 2006 and 2008. This extremely controversial episode of the ICC trying to prosecute uh, five rebel commanders at the same time as they were participating in peace talks. And so the Ugandan example threw up this huge peace versus justice debate, which totally electrified the whole field of, of transitional justice at the time. And so Uganda was the big ICC case, and yet come 2012, the court basically said it's too hard and we're moving on. And it left a lot of victims in, in northern Uganda in particular in the lurch.
A lot of local respondents also complain about the fundamental lack of outreach or systematic outreach conducted by the court, a lack of the court's willingness to explain itself. And I've been to a lot of these outreach meetings, again, a lot of it in northern Uganda and eastern Congo. And the way that it works typically is that an ICC outreach officer will turn up, um, put on a PowerPoint presentation with the ICC's website and then didactically take people through the way the website works and then refuse to take questions afterwards. Um, it goes down really well, as you can imagine. In the midst of conflict amongst populations that want to know more, that are confused by the sudden presence of ICC investigators in their midst and yet their questions aren't being asked. Uh, when the ICC first went into Uganda in 2004, it introduced itself to the Ugandan population with a pamphlet in the New Vision newspaper, um, which is English language uh, and state-owned. So here we are, this is what we do, voila. You know, it's a newspaper that's read by a few hundred thousand people. It's not, written in, it's not read predominantly in the north of the country, um, where the crimes are in fact being investigated. Uh, it wasn't translated into local languages. The pamphlet will suffice. So this sort of reflects something else that comes out of these interviews all the time, is a kind of lack of responsiveness of the court, a kind of a, you know, a tone deafness to uh, local concerns. I mean, one other way that this was manifest was I was at a conference in The Hague last year. Um, I was on a panel with my wife. I was at the time carrying our sort of 18-month-old boy in a baby Bjorn. Like, it's quite a sight. My wife is also, some of you know Nikki, she's also an academic in a sort of contiguous field, so we sometimes end up on the same panels. Um, so this particular one, she was speaking, I had, I had Angus, our son, and then we kind of switched. Anyway, that actually wasn't the point of the story, but I digress slightly. It's, it's completely indulgent, but anyway. Um, it's just, it's very, that part's very vivid. But the next thing was arguably even more vivid, which was in the Q&A. This kind of theme of neo-colonialism had been coming up in the discussion a lot. Um, so a British judge from the ICC was in the audience. And I can say this because this was not on Chatham House grounds. This was entirely on the public record. This man stood up and he said, look, I've been listening to this discussion of neo-colonialism in Africa. But one of the things that we always forget is that Britain also is a post-colonial society because we too were invaded by the Vikings. It's an interesting approach to the discussion, but you know, I mean, I was kind of waiting for the laughter, right? I kind of gave this man more credit than he clearly deserved, which was, you know, maybe this is British humour at play. Oh no, no it wasn't. He was sort of drawing some sort of equivalence between, you know, Britain in the 11th century and, and you know, northern Uganda in, in, the, in the 21st century. So, you know, this kind of, again, you know, it's, it's a single anecdote, what does that mean? But, you know, it kind of, it represents a kind of a mindset, and, and I think, you know, once you put it against a whole range of the other evidence that I present in the book, it, it sort of fleshes out a, sort of just a fundamental misunderstanding and sometimes just outright disrespect um, for, for a lot of the concerns that are being raised by, uh, by, by, by local actors. The final thing to say in terms of the court's relationship with um, local communities, because I'm keeping a fairly petrified eye on the clock, is that there's also a very consistent theme coming out of many of my interviews in northern Uganda and eastern Congo around the idea that the way that the ICC is going about delivering justice is clashing with some key local understandings of justice and other responses to mass atrocity. So a concern that what is effectively going on is the imposition of a model of justice that doesn't mesh that easily with many local actors' understandings of conflict and what they think needs to be done about it. 
And in the book, I talk about how in these two settings, as diverse as they are, there is a strong emphasis on the need for justice to be grounded in specific locations where crimes were committed. So ideally, trials and other processes would in fact take place in the same places where atrocities occurred. These responses, therefore, need to be visible and there should be scope for local actors to participate in them. So if you package all of that up, what you basically get is an articulation of the need for justice to have presence rather than distance. And again, as I sort of flesh out in more detail in the book, these ideas take very different forms, even amongst different communities in northern Uganda and different communities in Congo, and the two cases themselves say quite different things. But they all sort of coalesce back to this insistence on presence rather than distance. So that, I think, also goes some way to explaining why the court lacks legitimacy uh, in, in many parts of, of, of Central Africa. Um, and one other sort of final element that came out of this set of interviews was an idea too, and this was very strong in the Eastern Congolese case, this was big in Ituri, North and South Kivu, an idea that we've seen this kind of distant justice before, especially from the colonial period onwards, because that's what we've been up against for as long as anyone can remember, is justice being done by outsiders a long way away from where we live. And so we are suspicious of it. We can't see what's going on. We think there may be other machinations in the background and we are denied the opportunity to take part and to observe. And we've been complaining about this for more than a century. So in many respects, the ICC is simply the latest manifestation of a problem around distant justice that many of these communities have been experiencing for a very, very long time. So to conclude, I want to say something slightly positive, and I'm going to do it in three minutes, because um, I want to give Payam a, a chance to respond. Um, I do in the book try to say that I don't think the ICC is totally dead in the water, but I think it's pretty close. I think it's dead in the sense that structurally, I see it as incapable of dealing with government cases. That bit, I'm not sure the court can get around and it would be wise for it to admit that, I think, as quickly as possible. But I think there are some other facets of the court that can be overcome. Because what I don't want the book to become is a, a kind of an argument that can be used by the sort of Bashirs and John Boltons of this world. Look, we said, you know, the court is a kind of evil meddler in domestic affairs, we should kill the court. I think the court, at least in the, its kind of founding idea, was, was a good thing. I think actually, if the court was to go back to its first love of complementarity, it would find a pathway to reform itself in some really important ways, which is basically what I argue in the, in the conclusion to the book. I try to sort of map out a reform agenda for the ICC that is founded on the court's own core principle as it articulates it in the Rome Statute, namely complementarity. So what should the court do in kind of bullet points? Um, it needs to firstly show much greater caution and deference to the domestic space. And I think that sometimes means taking a risk on profoundly imperfect uh, domestic court processes and other responses to atrocity. Because what we're seeing is that the ICC itself is a profoundly imperfect institution. So there's often been an idea that it was states that had to really prove themselves. It was local institutions that really had to prove that they were up to scratch in terms of dealing with uh, investigations and the prosecutions of serious crimes. Actually, I think what we need to see is a much greater equality 
between the ICC and domestic processes, they are all flawed in their own ways. And the idea that we can somehow elevate the ICC uh, into some kind of superior uh, domain, I, th I think, is fanciful. And so I think that recognition alters the whole way that we start to think about what the court is capable of, but also the breadth of deference that I think it needs to show um, to, to, to the domestic space. Connected to that, I think, is the idea that the court also needs to back off, especially during delicate peace negotiations that involve suspects that it may have an interest in. And that's the kind of caution that we haven't seen the ICC show up until now. The conclusion also calls for much greater humility. And I think this is a key problem with the whole distance idea. It views the court as inherently superior to the domestic terrain. And I think we need to get beyond that. There needs to be much greater caution. There needs to be much greater humility, which includes the court explaining its aims and its limitations to local actors. We need to stop the kind of thing that we saw earlier this year around the 20th anniversary of the signing of the Rome Statute in 1998. You know, to watch these, and I can only use the word celebration, because that's what it was in The Hague, of the arrival and the impact of the ICC was jarring, to say the least, when you have a sense of how the court has been operating in, in Africa in particular. So we need to get away from this kind of triumphalism. Enough hubris, enough complacency. In practical terms, the court needs to hire country experts not just at the investigative level, but all the way through the institution. We've got to get away from this kind of management consultancy idea that you can just have generalists who will get up to speed and in any place where the court operates. It's not working. I think that's one of the arguments that I'm sort of trying to express towards actors within the ICC is this is not just about reflecting problems that local communities are having with your actions. You yourself, on your own terms, aren't investigating and prosecuting to the level that you expected to in 2002. Uh, and a lot of that is because you don't have the expertise. You don't have the right people in the key positions who know the local terrain, who can build these very difficult cases uh, from the ground up. Your investigators need to spend more time in the field. I think that's absolutely key. The court needs to also, I think, move towards something that some actors in the ICC are already talking about, which is holding in situ hearings, holding them in northern Uganda, holding trials in Eastern Congo. That, I think, would start to bridge some of this divide and may go some way, at least, to dealing with the court's uh, legitimacy issue. Um, and overall, I think the ICC just needs to take local context much more seriously. Rather than invoking distance and pretending that it is above the political fray, the court needs to recognise and admit that it is simply part of the political arena and it is also shaping that political arena in, in really fundamental ways. And I think that recognition uh, hopefully would lead to some improvements in the way the court's been operating, not just in Africa, but, but even further afield. Thanks, Ivan. Thank you very much, Ivo, um, and uh, the Transitional uh, Justice Research Group. And thank you and congratulations to my dear friend and esteemed colleague, Phil Clark. Um, I will begin on the theme of humility because in my culture they say humility is a sign of greatness. So my cousins always tell me, don't be humble, you're not that great. <laughs> now, I'm going to begin by really congratulating and commending you on what I told you um, in our conversation just before this event is a labor of love, 11 years of interviewing over 650 people, 
across so many different contexts from Ituri and Acholiland to The Hague. Um, and as you know, um, the theme of uh, narrowing distance, uh, to use your uh, expression, is one that is very near and dear to, to my heart. And I'm uh, uh, very grateful that we have scholars of your caliber that are addressing the fundamental question of what difference these institutions make to those uh, that are directly affected, to those whose suffering we invoke very often, but whose voices we listen to very rarely. And I must also commend you that, um, as a measure of your responsibility, other than criticizing the court, you have towards the end uh, suggestions and recommendations for how to improve what we all agree is an important institution. Having said that, and here is the however, because you, you don't want me to just be in violent agreement with you, I do have a number of very serious concerns. And one of them is the emergence of the ICC as a favorite scapegoat for academics and activists and journalists and the like. I think we need to step back to uh, achieve a distance, a good distance in this particular case, and understand the reality that although the ICC has made many mistakes, that there are many um, lessons to be learned and improvements to be made, that in fact the lack of political will and the absence of resources is by far the biggest problem confronting the International Criminal Court. Whatever improvement can be made to domesticate international justice from the remote confines of The Hague, to reconcile global and local justice, all of which I entirely agree with, even in the best case scenario, it would not make, I believe, a significant impact on the place of accountability in the present global order, where eradicating impunity, despite the painstakingly won victory of having an institution that we can criticize, still remains a very distant dream. So I think that my main concern is that we should not overstate the case. Um, and of course, uh, when we uh, begin with a certain framework, it's tempting to try to minimize or disregard facts that don't necessarily support that particular thesis. But I think the reality is that the ICC remains not this hegemonist institution that is dispensing neocolonial justice. On the contrary, it is a weak, fledgling institution, which is very much at the margins of power realities in the world. I only wish we had the problem of seeing the ICC as the Leviathan that is able to dispense global justice. And in that regard, um, I want to make a few more specific remarks before we uh, engage in a conversation. The first is that it's always easy to look in hindsight and criticize decisions that were made at the time. And I want to speak in particular about the Lord's Resistance Army case. And you've, you and I have had some exchanges because, as you know, I was involved in, in that matter. And I can tell you for a fact that it was not initially the ICC that came to the Ugandan government. The idea was put to the Ugandan government in the summer of 2003, I believe in July or August. There was an initial meeting between the uh, then Prime Minister of uh, Uganda 
and the prosecutor in The Hague, I believe it was in October of 2003, and by December, Uganda had made a referral. So in part, it may be that some in the ICC want to take credit for this to show their initiative, but it was the Ugandan government that arrived at the conclusion, as any other government would, that it, it was in its political interest to refer a case to the court. And I think that we should not be astonished by that fact that governments act out of the perception of their interest. Now, the question is, when you have a weak, fledgling institution with very serious resource constraints, are there not realistically places in which we need to have, if you like, marriages of convenience to allow this fledgling institution to just get off the ground and begin to do some of its work? So, yes, I have my own ideal world as well, in which there are no Machiavellian politics, there are unlimited resource, resources, and one could speak about that ideal world. Well, that ideal world doesn't exist, except in our academic space. The real world is messy, it is pathetic, it is appalling, and we have to see what we can realistically do, inch by inch, to move this agenda forward, despite all of the pitfalls and traps that exist. So what did the world look like in 2003 and the whole question of peace versus justice? Well, in 2003, we had one of the worst years in terms of the LRA's atrocities, as you well know. Some 20,000 children in Acholi land had been abducted. It was even by the appalling standards of the LRA, one of the worst, if not the worst year in terms of the LRA's atrocities in Acholi land. The Ugandan government had an interest in isolating uh, Joseph Kony for its own uh, reasons, some of which were commendable, some less commendable. And donor states, including the United Kingdom, the Netherlands, and Norway, were pressuring the Ugandan government to arrive at some sort of political agreement with the LRA. Now, let's go back to the Lome Accord of 1999, which I, I hope you will, in a second edition, <laughs> Um, address in greater detail. We forget the catastrophic effects of the Lome Accord in 1999 in which Joseph Kony, in the name of subordinating justice for the sake of peace, was given the position of vice president, minister of mines, for understandable reasons, and all of the so-called political realists believed that this would be a great solution for the civil war in Sierra Leone. It was an absolute unmitigated catastrophe. So there are lessons to be learned when we suggest that were it not for the ICC, Joseph Kony would have come out of the bush, he would have been given the position of vice president, and everything would have worked out well. I think that that is entirely unrealistic. There's absolutely no basis for the conclusion that the ICC somehow uh, was stood in the way of a peace agreement. Were it not for the ICC, Joseph Kony would have come out of the bush. And the man, realistically, and his leadership uh, can best be described as deeply mentally disturbed psychopathic murderers. <laughs> it's not an exaggeration. The same thing with Joseph Kony. Joseph Kony, I'm sorry, with, with Fode Sanko. Fode Sanko saw the Lome Accord as weakness. And when you've dealt with some of these warlords, you realize that they see the world in a very different way. For him, this was not an incentive to put down his arms. Fode Sanko saw this as weakness and came to the conclusion, why should I be vice president 
when I could just take Freetown, including taking 500 UN peacekeepers hostage, and simply become president. So I just want to urge some caution about exaggerating the importance of the ICC or its role in the continuation of violence and hegemony in bolstering uh, repressive governments. Uh, I think that we are giving uh, uh, far too much importance to how much influence the ICC actually has. A couple of other points. Um, the, the complaint that there is an excessive focus on Africa in the ICC. It's understandable. Some would say that other more powerful states should also be held accountable, and I fully respect that uh, uh, complaint, uh, bearing in mind the, the reality of how the world functions. That is certainly an objective that we must have in mind as we allow the rule of law and the ICC to slowly take root in the culture, uh, sordid culture, uh, of international politics. However, I um, remember when the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia was established in 1993 that the first complaint that I heard is, why don't we have a similar ad hoc jurisdiction for Africa? And there was truth to the complaint that the ICTY, without which we would most probably would have never had an ICC to begin with, that this prototype jurisdiction was established only because the victims were European. And this was the complaint of the likes of my dear friend Phil Clark, who uh, uh, want to focus on how the African continent is being shortchanged, which I agree with as well. So the ICTR would have never been established if the ICTY had not been established the year before the genocide in Rwanda. And this was a kind of openly acknowledged reality. So I would say that excessive focus in Africa is on balance a good thing, rather than lack of any accountability mechanisms, however imperfect. That's one point which I wanted to bear in mind as well. And the fact is that many of these atrocities, in terms of scale and gravity, justify a focus on Africa. Now, the case of the Rohingya now is one of the cases outside of Africa which justifies the intervention of the uh, ICC, and there are some, uh, uh, there is some movement in, in, in that direction. Uh, but we should step back and see whether the scale of the atrocities in Ituri and Acholiland don't in fact justify uh, attention by the court. A couple of other things. Um, towards your conclusions at page 305, you dismiss concerns about Machiavellian politics and resource constraints, saying that those of us, of which I'm a, a notorious member, who are apologists for the project of international <laughs> criminal justice, which you are an apologist for in a way when it comes down to it, um, that, we, we, uh, that we are somehow exaggerating the importance of that. I, I don't think that's the case. I think there's very good reason to, uh, uh, to look at the fact, for example, that the entire ICC budget is about $150 million, which is nothing. The ICTY, which dealt with one situation, which could develop expertise among um, analysts and investigators over the span of many years, which is exactly one of the problems which, which I think you, you identified spot on, that the ICC is moving from one investigation to the other. That's why they had to move away in mm -hmm. 2012 
from the, uh, the situation in Uganda because there were other situations demanding their attention. So the ICTY budget was $250 million, $100 million more than the budget of the ICC. So the ICC is being starved of resources, and one can probably see that there are a lot of governments that don't want to give it more resources, that don't want to give it the capability to invest itself in particular situations over time to develop the expertise that you're speaking about. And the Machiavellian politics are very, very real. Let's take the case of uh, the arrest warrant against President Bashir. Has any country seriously pressured Sudan to cooperate with the ICC? Has anyone exacted a cost? Nobody has, including the Western governments, in part because Sudan is a partner in the so-called war on terror. The United States Embassy in Khartoum is one of the biggest embassies, which has active operations in Sudan. We forget that Osama bin Laden used to be in Sudan until an agreement was made to expel him to Afghanistan. One could go on and on to speak about how Machiavellian politics stand very much in the way of creating an effective institution. My mentor, Antonio Cassese, the ICTY, used to say, the ICTY is a giant with no arms and no legs. <laughs> We're entirely dependent on state cooperation. That's a reality. So unless anyone has an army of occupation that they would like to uh, lend out to the ICC, the ICC will continue to be weak, entirely dependent on state cooperation, except where governments are incentivized to cooperate with the court which is what happened at the ICTY when in 2001, following the uprising against Slobodan Milosevic, and yes, you cannot arrest people until they've been deposed. That's a sad reality, and you have to play the long game. It took us 16 years to arrest Radovan Karadzic and Ratko Vladic. So, you know, it's not that justice delayed is justice denied. Justice delayed is justice delivered. That's the game which we have to play in the international uh, criminal law sphere. Why was Milosevic surrendered? Because there were several hundred million dollars of IMF loans that were conditioned on his surrender. The cost became too great not to surrender him. So those are the brutal realities of what allows these institutions to actually capture anyone except that insignificant small fish in Ituri who becomes mm. you know, the, 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 the uh, Dushko Tadic uh, to give you an example, would have been the only accused person uh, before the ICTY had there not been a 60,000-strong peacekeeping force in Bosnia that began to execute arrest warrants. So that's just the, the reality that we're, we're dealing with. A couple of other quick points, and I'm going to wrap up. Um, you speak about flexibility to other forms of justice, the idea that you know, punitive justice as opposed to restorative justice uh, sentencing circles, uh, gachacha, uh, local rituals in Acholiland. Well, I, I beg to differ. I think the ICC uh, exists parallel to those proceedings. I mean, how many people has the ICC actually prosecuted in 20 years? We have, what, five cases? Five cases of which four, uh, 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 only three or four resulted in acquittals. The majority of ICC cases have been thrown out before they went to trial. Um, and the uh, problem is not somehow that the ICC stands in the way of all of those other mechanisms, um, but that the ICC has too few resources to prosecute anyone except a handful of, of people. So I'm just going to end by 
looking at your three um, practical recommendations for reform, as you call it, in the last section, which you refer to as reinvigorating complementarity. The first point you make is to sort of go back to that um, uh, sort of uh, lost world of innocence when <laughs> Prosecutor Ocampo uh, spoke about uh, complementarity and how in the best of all worlds the ICC would remain idle because national courts would be prosecuting vigorously. Um, you suggest that there is no flexibility um, in the practice of complementarity, in admissibility proceedings before the court, um, and you refer in particular to Alex Whiting's um, complaint in, in respect of Embarushimana, where he said that, but, but you know, if you'd just given us a bit more time, the ICC prosecutor could have completed its investigation. And of course, the court uh, cannot indict anyone based on a notional investigation. Either you have the evidence which allows for an arrest warrant to be issued, or you don't. It's as simple as that. However, that actually does not apply in the jurisprudence of the court in admissibility proceedings, where a mere investigation is sufficient. Article 17 does not require an investigation to have been concluded. And in fact, uh, I think that you do address the Libya admissibility case, but don't give it sufficient prominence, especially the Abdullah al-Sanusi case, mm -hmm. um, where the court did in fact, uh, as you note, um, uh, recognize the primacy of the Libyan courts to, to prosecute. And of course, the human rights groups were livid and heavily criticized uh, the, the, the court's judgment saying that, well, Libyan court cannot possibly meet fair trial standards. So even in the Gaddafi case, the uh, ICC held that the investigation had not proceeded far enough for the contours of the case to be clear, but then invited the Libyan government to make a second admissibility challenge. So I think that there is more enthusiasm in the court for complementarity to work than you may imagine. The second point, changes in personnel, more nationals from affected states, more people with political cultural expertise. You're absolutely right, except that there are two problems. One is, I would urge caution in hiring people from a country that is affected, because that creates a whole set of other problems as well. In the ICTY, we had people from the former Yugoslavia. Some were absolutely indispensable. Others turned out to be spies. Other, others turned out to have very strong political biases because they didn't have sufficient distance. So it can work both ways. It can work both ways. But the real problem is resource constraints, once again. With a budget of $150 million, about a third of which goes to the prosecutor's office for investigations, you have $50 million to conduct investigations across 10, 15 different sites, each of which requires expertise, in addition to preliminary examinations, in addition to a whole range of other activities. But I will end on one final note, your third recommendation, increasing presence in communities, trials in situ. I would wholeheartedly agree with that. The ICC especially because it is a weak and fledgling institution, needs to take extraordinary steps to win legitimacy in 
the societies which are directly affected. Uh, and I think that if the ICC is going to be transformed from an institution which unfortunately is uh, experiencing nothing short of a, of, a, of a crisis, an existential crisis, that the only way to transform it is to create a movement with um, the grassroots, uh, with civil society, and until the ICC can inspire confidence and credibility that it is, in fact, delivering justice where it matters most, it will not be able to uh, pass through this very uh, difficult situation. <coughs> so I'm going to stop there and congratulate you once again on an excellent book. Good. Bye.